0: What's going on, everybody? It's that time again. It's time for the With a Bullet podcast. I'm Todd Golden with my brother, Matt Golden. Matt, how go things? Uh, pretty good, um, considering that I've been basically in my apartment all week. <laughs> but... yeah. We are all self-isolating, so this is as good a time as any to get through the coronavirus crisis. What better thing could you do than to listen to Matt and I talk about songs from a long time ago? I can't think of it. I seriously can't think of anything better to do. No, no, I can't think of anything either. I think we're going to heal people with this podcast. Yes, yes. Heal people with the music of 1981. Yeah, well, and that reminds me. So it was Matt's turn to pick this week, and he chose a chart from March 21st, 1981. Matt, I have my own theory on why you picked this, but I'll let you go ahead and tell everybody why this is the route you wanted to go this week. Um, let's see. Well, kind of wanted to go back to the 80s, and we hadn't really done a singles chart from the early 80s. We did an albums chart, and um, some of the songs on this list um, were some of the first songs I remember hearing. And it's also almost before the dawn of MTV. So um, just kind of, MTV debuted probably about six months after this. So this, like, the last gasp of radio just being the dominant force instead of MTV coming in and taking over. Yeah, well, you know what? That sounds very legitimate and a very good reason. You know what I really think your reason is? What? What's that? To give me the shittiest songs of all time to talk about. <laughs> most, most, of the, most of the ones that I had weren't that great either. So. I, sometimes I wax poetic about how much I love some of the songs I get. Those of you who listen to us regularly are not going to be hearing too much of that you're going to hear more like the critical uh being shitty version of myself because <laughs> there is a lot of dross on this countdown but but sometimes that makes it more fun but we're still we're here to heal yes, yes. I actually have a theme that we can go with on this one okay um, if you don't mind me suggesting it um, since we're all self isolating and social distancing um would you want to social distance and socially isolate yourself with these songs? (laughs) (laughs) Like if they took all of your, if they took all of your music, maybe I'm going too far with this, but if they took all of your music away, could you stand to listen to these, to the, to whatever song it is? Um, Just uh, just on repeat forever or? Sure. (laughs) So let's go with that. Okay, okay. That I just made up out of the clear blue sky. So, let's get started. Number 40, and this is uh, not a song I necessarily would have placed in this time frame, but here it is, is uh, Turn Me Loose by Loverboy. Right, and this was their first hit. Um, Not really a fan of Loverboy, but this is probably my favorite. What? No, I don't like Loverboy. Okay. (laughs) I I knew knew that. I'm just being, being, I'm trying to heal people. Okay, Okay, okay. Um, but this is probably my favorite song of theirs. Um sounds really sleazy, like the bassline's kind of sleazy, lyrics are kind of sleazy. Um probably should have been used in like the long way down sequence from Boogie Nights and definitely would have fit on Rahad Jackson's awesome mixtape number 6. Um but... What? Okay, I'm I'm rolling with you. Go ahead. Well, yeah, I mean, like Sister Christian's on there. I um, forget what else was on it, but, oh, Jesse's yeah. Girl. But, yeah, this would have fit right in with that. I disagree. I think they he would have gone with uh, Hot Girls in Love. And <laughs> it would be better to throw, be on cocaine and throw firecrackers around to Hot Girls in Love, in my opinion. I'm just saying, or or working for the weekend. Yeah, but I mean, this one kind of—I mean, it's kind of darker, and it would kind of work with that scene. Yeah, but he wasn't dark though. The scene was dark. The guy doing the, the, the—he was a happy guy until they tried to rob him. Yeah, he was yeah. like, "Hang out, yeah, hang out that's with true. my, <laughs> with my Chinese bitch and uh, my firecrackers and my mixtape." <laughs> so I don't know. I'm not with you on that one. I'd, I'd, I'd kind of roll with, uh, um. If it had been out by the time that part of Boogie Nights what, what year did that take place in Boogie Nights, like eighty four? Yeah. Um, yeah. He definitely could have gone with uh Love and Every Minute of It though. Yeah, yeah, that that probably would have worked. <laughs> whoa, whoa, whoa. But um it also has it has a has a video and it's basically an actual video, which is kind of rare for that time. Um it's kind of half lover boy performing in an empty theater, and the other half is clips from silent movies, which was kind of a common thing for like early eighties videos for some reason. Probably just because they were like in the public domain. Yeah, that'd be my guess. Yep. See, but um, it was heading up the charts at this point. It did eventually make it up to number six. So was this early- on the? Yeah was um, this on the Get lucky album? No, I think it was on their self titled album actually, oh, okay, right. I'm not up on my lover boy discography as much as I should be, so right let's see well let's let's move on to number thirty nine um this one that I'd never heard before um Tierra with together, and I'd never heard it before either and but I went and listened to it, and it kind of defies description um and I thought when I, you know, when I first, start, I when I do, when I prepare for this thing, I usually go in order because I, the way I do it is I kind of list them in order on my little cheat sheet I have when we do this. Mm-hmm. Oh, wait, I don't do these off the top of my head. I have a cheat sheet. Yes, I do. But, <coughs> um, so I went to go listen to this and I was like, oh yeah, we're off to a great start on this countdown because if you had to pick out something that was stereotypically early eighties, like very early eighties, um, There is actually some video footage of this because Tierra was on several. There must have been on American Bandstand and a few other shows at the time. So there is footage of this. And, um, you know, it couldn't be more like yacht rock imagery, like guys in polo shirts and, um, you know, with big, big hair and beards and stuff like that. So it's a little bit yacht rock, but it's a lot more Latin R&B and really quite a bit soft soul, like in the vein of like Tavares or something like that. Mm -hmm. Um, There's a good reason for that. It's the reason is that Tiara, the band grew out of El Chicano, which was a really popular in the seventies LA Latin rock band. And they're pretty good. I've actually listened to El Chicano before they're 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 uh, they, they had a niche in the seventies. They weren't ever really um, over the top popular. Like they weren't on the charts a lot, but within the, latino community they were very popular and so so this is in that so they're if you want to take a couple steps away from like hardcore latin rock you're probably two steps away from that you're definitely in some yacht rock mode and you're probably sort of in earth wind and fire from that period mode as well like kind of softer r&b type stuff but it's it's, it's actually a pretty good song and it does bear like the hook and it bears a certain resemblance to um, am I the same girl or um, um, soulful strut or however you want to refer to it. But Mm -hmm. it's also a remake of the intruders hit from the uh, sixties. So, and it got up to number 18. Hmm. So this kind of betrays, see, we should probably explain where we were at, like in terms of our lives at this point by this point, 1981, I would have been nine years old. Matt was very young. He would have been, um, not even, uh, I, I was still yet. two. This was this right. a week bef- before I turned three. Yeah. But when we, by then we were living in Texas. And so I have a hole in my top 40 experience. Cause for the most part, we listened to country music. When we lived in Texas, it was, it was big, you know, it, it we were in right smack in the middle of the urban cowboy period of country. We lived in Dallas where bull riding and all that shit was, uh, <laughs> you know, hot. And so we kind of, you know, our parents were not that our parents went out bull riding, but they, you know, they listened to the music. So so I know myself by this point, I should have been old enough to be listening to the radio. I'm, you know, maybe not on my own, but knowing songs but I have a complete hole in my experience sort of in terms of the top 40 from this era. So, so I had no recollection of the song either, even though it made it all the way up to 18 Mm -hmm. from a band. I doubt hardly anybody remembers anymore. So, but not a bad song. It's, it's actually uh, pretty good. Mm -hmm. Yep. If you're into that. So moving on a song that uh, isn't so good. Um, (laughs) Passion by rod stewart yeah this was a huge hit um or actually a big hit it made it up to number five but it's hardly ever played on the radio anymore not really one of rod's most remembered songs and it kind of sounds like a mashup between do you think i'm sexy um eminence front by the who and pop music by m and kind of like pop music by m um Rod at some point just starts naming off random cities, and uh, the background vocals kind of answer passion to him. And, yeah. Um, and there is a video for this. Rod was kind of like an early adopter of music videos, and um, it's pretty typical of that era. It's basically a live performance video, and they're playing on a, a red and black polka dotted sound stage. And uh, for some reason, his backing band is decked out of T-shirts that say Sex Police on them. (laughs) um, It ended up getting played twice on the first day of MTV. And its debut was immediately after I Want to Be a Lifeguard by Blotto. What? Okay, so they're the sex police. So are they arresting Rod for having too much sex or... Or is Rod like the captain of the sex police? I, I don't know. Rod Rod wasn't wearing one of the t-shirts himself. So they well, may have well, been that... like arresting Rod after he stopped singing the song, but he very well could have been the captain of the sex police. So, or yeah, but anyway, <laughs> maybe they just wanted to have sex with the band, the police. And that was like an actual declaration baby sex baby police yeah let's go <laughs> that that has to be you know i'm not counting rod stewart you know for most artists i think once they get past there's a couple of exceptions but once they get past their 20 year mark in terms of you know being on the charts you don't expect a whole lot so if you start rod stewart's clock in the late 60s like when he was with jeff beck group mm-hmm. uh Which takes him to the late eighties. I think this might be his worst song in that entire period. Yeah, probably the worst single. I think. Yeah, it's it's awful. It has not aged well. Probably wasn't great at the time, despite going number five. But so yeah, right. Pretty bad. See, well, let's move on to thirty-seven here, which is a retail classic. um, um, "Sing Old Lang Syne" by Dan Fogelberg. Skip. I I knew that you were going to skip this one. (laughs) I actually did not originally have this skip. This was my last skip, but yeah, I'm skipping. Okay. All right. Our mom taught taught us, if you you can't say anything nice, don't say anything at all, which I regularly break on this very podcast, but (laughs) I'm going to maintain it though here. So that moves us on to. Number thirty-six, Living in a Fantasy by Leo Sayer. Not an eighties artist necessarily. Yeah, this is my first skip. Um, not really a fan of Leo Sayre, so <sighs> <laughs> <laughs> I don't even know what that was. Yeah. Um, but number thirty-five for you is Yarborough and Peoples with Don't Stop the Music. I'm not going to lie. This song makes me uncomfortable because it's weird. It's like, I feel like the robots are coming after me or something when I listen to this song. Now I should probably explain that. It's, um, it's definitely like an, it's I guess an early version of an electro funk song, I guess. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, Yarbrough and people's, you know, you know, basically the hook of the song is don't you stop me, which that is not like, electronically altered it's just the way he's singing Uh it but it sounds it's not intended to be ominous but to me it sounds ominous and later on in the song they kind of break out these electronic voices i'm going to get to that in a second that sing this uh weird uh thing where they go you don't really want to stop no (laughs) it sounds like the um it sounds like the dude from uh nucleus's uh jam on it. It's like an early proto version of like, that. Like but, the sped up voice or... Yeah, like, jam. remember the, the part in the middle of jam on it where he's like, wiki, 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 wiki yeah, and yeah. all that shit. Yeah, it's like that. <laughs> but so that part of it has always made me uncomfortable enough. I just, this song doesn't do it for me, but then I went and watched the video for it. And so in the part where they do that, where they go, you don't really want to stop. No! <laughs> they have these hand puppets that like pop up from behind the keyboards and they're like creepier than like if you if you've ever watched sesame street remember um they used to have these like space puppets that would come out okay (laughs) and they were they were blue and they were just weird kind of jim henson probably acid flashback creations when i was a kid they used to creep (laughs) it out so they're creepier than that they're arguably creepier than the mr rogers uh you know neighborhood puppets which are very creepy yeah kind of. i mean they're not like they're kind of like muppets they're they're like a combination of muppets um like willie and lester and um just nightmare fuel i mean one of them i couldn't even tell what a couple of them were one of them was a pig and one was a clown and then the other two i don't know what the fuck they were but so (laughs) every time they do that line they pop up from behind the keyboards with hand puppets. Okay. So this song has some serious nightmare fuel to it. It's not even a very good song anyway. And apparently Yarborough and peoples used to do that in concert. Like the hand puppets became a thing. Oh for God. Them. So, <laughs> you know, I'm not afraid of puppets or anything like that, but you know, that it's just, it's not, it's no, I'm not having it. So, <laughs> So yeah. So if you wanna if you wanna hear a song that makes you feel like the robots are coming for you and your medicine (laughs) and all that. Because they like to eat old people's medicine (laughs) listen to this song and then and watch the video and see the hand puppets. I'm not making this shit up. This this really I'm not trying. Okay, okay. So yes, but moving on, a song that's pretty Opposite from Yarborough and Peoples Ain't Even Done with the Night by John Cougar. Yeah, and I'm skipping this. It's not one of my favorite one of his hits. Oh, yes. So. You, you know what's ironic about this uh-huh. film, though? We were flagging on Rod Stewart. This is like John Cougar's attempt to be Rod Stewart. Yeah, yeah, I can see that. With, with, with the mandolin and yeah, all that? Yep. yeah. So yeah. See, but moving on to thirty-three for you, um, Ronnie Millsap with Smoky Mountain Rain. This would be my second skip because now Ronnie Millsap would have been in the wheelhouse of what we were listening to at the time, but I just never dug Ronnie Millsap. Mm-hmm. So okay. So <laughs> number thirty-two just between you and me by april one yeah and april wine were from halifax nova scotia um they're pretty big in their native canada but they never really had the same impact in the states i mean part of this was probably because of can con laws which i brought up in one of our previous episodes where um Cana- canadian radio <laughs> did have to play canadian artists a certain um, amount of the day but um they did have a couple hits in the U.S. before this, um, one in 72, uh, one in 78, but this was their very last one, and it's a power ballad, and not bad as far as power ballads go. I mean, it, I mean I'm mean, i not a fan of power ballads, but this is okay, I guess. Um, and the final chorus of this song is sung in French, so... Um, they were kind of angling for the Quebecois audience, I guess. i um, assuming if they're playing a concert in Montreal or Quebec City, uh, everybody would just like cheer at that point. <laughs> um, but this was also played on MTV on its first day. And they were the very first Canadians to appear on the network. And it somehow got played five times that day even though it's just like a straightforward clip from one of their concerts. Now, this song was pretty popular, though. I mean, it may... I don't know how high it ever got. Um, Made it to 21. But... Yeah, but I mean, it was played on a lot of FM. Classic rock radio didn't really exist yet in 81. It was still FM radio, kind of WKRP-ish, but this song got played quite a bit. I mean, well, well into the 80s, too. I can remember hearing it quite a bit. Yeah. So... In fact, I even I even had friends that profess to be April Wine fans, which I'm not sure how that happened. They this is really the only there, song there's, I, I know. One of their songs it, from the '70s, which didn't become a hit in America, "Tonight Is a Night Tonight Is a Wonderful Night to Fall in Love," is actually a really good song. So yeah, but but, uh, but this song was pretty, you know, not that I was out partying in '81 or anything like that, but I do know this song. You know, like, I'm, April Wine, I'm sure, I, they strike me as a band that would have opened for REO Speedwagon or something. Yeah, yeah, I can see that. Actually, they opened up for the Stones. That no, was close. They, That's what I... They opened yeah. up for the Stones so, on the Some Girls Tour, actually. So... Yeah. But... So, um, we haven't really gone along with a the theme yet, but I... Yeah, I was about <laughs> but, to ask you about that. But I'd I'm, I'm say that I definitely would not want to be self-isolated with a song i mean it would be okay maybe to like the third time in a row that i would just like probably throw the whatever i was listening to it on like into a wall or something <laughs> of the songs that we've had so far this would probably be my pick though i mean ain't even done with the night that mandolin would make me want to shove a like a rod through my skull i mean it's not a terrible song or anything, but that part of it would drive me crazy. And the rest of these songs, um, even Together by Tira. So this would be my pick yeah, so far. Yeah, I'd probably say, yeah, I'd say that this so one's up, the best so far. so far. But that's not, that's not really saying Which is, much. <laughs> no, probably but so. moving on to 31 for you, um, Smokey Robinson with Being With You. All right. Get ready to have your mind blown because I'm about to educate you on the Smokey Robinson, Kim Carnes nexus. Okay. so um, the year before this, 1980, Kim Carnes had a hit with Smokey Robinson and the Miracles song from the 60s, More Love, which I think made it into the top 10. And Smokey liked her version of More Love, so he decided to pay her back by writing a song called Being With You uh, for her. But in the process of doing it and probably working on a demo so she could hear it, Smokey's producer said, yo, Smokey, this is a really good song. You should just keep it. So he did. And it became his biggest solo hit outside of the Miracles. Hmm. Um, and it reached number two. And what did it reach number two behind? Kim Carnes's Betty wow. Davis Eyes. Wow. Now that I've blown your minds uh, in self-isolation, uh, you can... Uh, be have the knowledge of being with you you know it's pretty typical Smokey robinson song by the time he did go solo he kind of pioneered the quiet storm type of um mm-hmm. genre I, this song's probably i'd say it's probably his best of his 80 songs they all sound basically mm-hmm. the same but um uh, song's all right yeah i don't mind I, it i mean i'm not gonna go out and seek it out. i'm not gonna seek it out or anything but yeah it's it's okay though so, um being self-isolated with it yeah mm, yeah no, yeah I wouldn't probably not be. <laughs> so that leads us to number 30 which is giving it up for your love by delbert McClain. and this is a skip um just kind of like boring kind of bar blues type stuff so you suck that's <laughs> okay. okay so but that also leads us to your longest okay, dedication okay okay Um, well, at number 99, we have Flash, ah, savior of the universe. You know, I was watching the beginning of that tonight, actually. It was on, uh, it was on Comet or something like that. Yeah. Yeah. Seriously. I watched, I watched the first, I always seem to miss the intro of Flash Gordon, like when they actually leave planet earth. So I watched that part and then I was like, (laughs) okay, okay. But, of, of course, we're talking about uh, Flash's theme by Queen, which was the theme song from Flash Gordon. Uh, Flash Gordon's an incredibly weird movie, um, possibly the weirdest superhero adaptation ever. Um, it's extremely camping over the top. And this song, which appears on the soundtrack practically every five minutes, just kind of adds to that. And we've already taken a couple of shots of Bohemian Rhapsody in a couple episodes. But I think that movie would have been a hundred times better if they just dropped everything in 1980 and did the rest of the movie as a scene-for-scene Flash Gordon remake. Um, Remy Malek could have played Flash. The guy who played Brian May could have been making The Merciless. And the guy who played Roger Taylor could yell out, Mercury's alive? At some point. Yeah. And yeah. it would have been amazing and probably actually would have won best picture. So, um, who am I going to dedicate this to? Um, I'm going with the fictional 1980 New York jets. Um, you guys love starting running back because he's off on the planet Mongo saving the universe. I know it sucks, but you guys are still going to finish fourth in the FC East anyway. Um, well, that's how that's how Freeman McNeil. I, I, got was, the I was getting to that. Job I was getting to that. I mean, every everything's going to be okay because you're going to still draft the fictional Freeman McNeil. So, just hang in there. Yeah, yeah. It just saved him from beginning beat by the Saints in 1980. That was the only team the Saints oh, really? beat that year. Was the Jet? Yeah, Jets have a history of losing to winless teams, as they did last year too, a couple times. Uh-huh. So. Yeah. But Flash Gordon is pretty remarkable movie for people our age. We probably didn't get the, you know, the, I mean, the camp yeah. is all intended, but for people who are nine years old, like I was at the time, that definitely would have gone over our heads. So for us, we took it at face value and um, I don't, I, I did not see it in the theater, but I did see it a couple of years later. And uh, uh, you know, but then I kind of figured out it was a little bit over mm-hmm. the top. Um, but still pretty cool movie and see i make a different allusion to flash gordon i think the part at the end um where they you know ming the merciless gets uh you know killed by the spaceship or whatever and then of course they do to set up the sequel they have the like the ruby ring and it goes the end (laughs) question mark and then you hear the chords of the best queen song maybe the best queen song of all time maybe apart from under pressure is the uh the the, the the hero, which is the end theme that they play, which just starts off with that great Brian May, that <laughs> which rocks. And see, I think they should remake The Seventh Seal, which they can't now because Max von Cito just died, R.I.P. But, um and, you know, the part, the famous part at the end of The Seventh Seal where yeah. they're doing the dance of death? They could do the same thing and instead of, they could play that Brian May song and put the, you know, whatever I don't know what Swedish for the end is, but put the end question <laughs> okay. mark. Maybe they come. Maybe the seven seal characters come <laughs> okay. back. Okay. So I think we right. with it. So, but Flash Gordon is cool. And to bring this around a little bit, the audio we've been playing at the beginning and the end of the podcast, which is from the movie Get Carter, um, was directed. This, he the same director of uh, Get Carter also directed. Uh, I, I didn't know that actually. Yep. 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 That's why I'm here. I'm here to heal <laughs> okay. and to educate. <laughs> let's see. Well, let's move on here to 29, which is um, James Taylor and J.D. Southerd with Her Town Too. Skip complete yep. dross. Let's move on. Number 28. Back from the Dead, Guitar Man by Elvis Presley. This would be four years, almost four years after he Yeah, I'm, uh, I'm skipping this one. Um, it was basically one of those songs where they take Elvis's vocal and they had um, country artists come up with a backing track for it. It's not really great. Um, it was Elvis's last top 40 hit, though. So, Yeah, I can remember Elvis being on the country chart a lot. When we lived in Texas, and I was like, "How is this happening? I mean, he's he's dead. I wonder how many like post posthumous recordings they did." Well, I know like that they were basically, basically yeah, kind of well, ripoffs, really. I mean, probably about fifteen years ago, there was a little less conversation song that became a hit. Was that was that done posthumously? Yeah, I mean, it was like a remix. Yeah. Oh, well, remix is different. I mean, he. See. so anyway whatever it was a skip right we don't want to believe but moving on to 27 for you um Blondie with the Titus high yep they were the third artist to record this song it was originally recorded by the paragons and then later by gregory isaacs who was sort of a r&b slash reggae singer and and it was another most people have heard this song it's you know basically basically a reggae song and it was yet another stylistic change for Blondie who were really at the peak of their powers mm-hmm. chart-wise at this point. Uh, but they were also at this point kind of throwing themselves at every genre. And you wonder in hindsight whether that kind of got them off course in terms of their own popularity. I mean, they did um, Call Me, which is basically basically a straightaway That's rock actually song. Actually and then kind of a ripoff of this, the then... Children of the Grave by Black Sabbath yeah but and then of course they did rapture which included a painful you know early example of of hip hop in it but um you know so they were kind of all over the place which kind of it, it kind of is a double edged sword because it shows how talented they were but it also kind of made them a little <clears> aimless <throat> i think um however this is a good song and and um one of one of, one of the blondie songs i i like and and it did go to number 1 as well so um so they were they were rolling at that point but they weren't rolling for that much longer i mean their their time on the charts was people think of blondie and it, you know they really had a very brief period where they were you know chart rulers so to speak i mean really from late 79 yeah. to early 81 and then it was pretty much over so but anyway moving on Number 26, Angel and of the Morning by This Justin. is one of the very first songs I remember hearing. Um, it was kind of a big hit when we, were, when we first moved to Texas, so we heard it a lot. Um, it's a cover of um, Mary Lee Rush's 1968 hit, and it was written by um, Chip Taylor, who also wrote Wild Thing. And Taylor was the younger brother of the actor John Voigt. So... Um, but I, I prefer this to the Mary Lee Rush version and um, Newton wasn't really familiar with the song. Um, one of one of the promo guys at her record label kind of suggested that she do it and um, ended up being a good fit. Um, it was, let's see, ended up peaking at number four. It was number one on the alternative or adult, contemporary chart, actually. Um, Also charted on the country chart. Juice Newton primarily was a country artist. Um, But there is a video for this, and it is like an actual video, not like a live performance. I I hadn't seen it before, but it kind of cuts between Juice performing the song with her band at rehearsal space and... Her band, backing band, most of the guys look like NASCAR drivers, basically. <laughs> um, her lead guitarist actually looks like Bob Horner from the Atlanta Braves, though. It was Bob Horner from the Atlanta Braves right, right. after he hit four home runs in a game. But um, that's one half of it. The other half is like a very literal interpretation of the song. Um, where it's just Juice kind of moping in her bedroom, kind of staring out the window. And the guy who she just slept with um, touches her cheek before he leaves. So um, kind of starting the yep. tradition of very literal country videos. <laughs> but Yeah, but you know what? I, I, I will say this and we didn't address the tight as I should have done. It was my song, but this and the tide is high would be the first two songs that would be acceptable to me. So to be, I, I think so too. With. Yeah. I, I wouldn't, I, I wouldn't mind. I wouldn't mind. I, it's a great song. This, song. this may, this, this may be the very best song on the entire top 40 to be totally honest. And I got to say, Juice Newton is a little bit underrated. I mean, you know, she became a punchline later for, for like the, the weirdness of the early eighties charts Because it is odd that she was Mm -hmm. a country artist, quote unquote, because very few of her songs sound straight up country, which was why the country charts were so weird at that time anyway. But um, on my next song, I'll talk about that, too. But um, she had three or four legitimately good songs. Queen of Hearts was pretty good, too. um, Yeah. Queen of Hearts is a good song. And um, so but this was easily her best song. Wasn't it in. uh, um Deadpool at the beginning of the I, of the I haven't credits. seen Deadpool, but yeah, it wasn't Deadpool. Yeah, so but uh very cool song. Very cool, and it beats the shit up. Oh of yeah, the original. yeah. I mean it's yeah. not even close. So yeah. <laughs> Give right. it up to Juice Newton. Um let's see, but moving on to twenty five, we have Terry Gibbs with um someone's knocking or somebody's knocking. Now this song this somebody yeah somebody's knocking this song definitely reminds me of when we lived in texas because it was a big hit on the country charts it was a pretty big hit on the pop charts as well um again though this song this song is probably more country than angel the morning is but um you know i still can't figure out exactly how this got played on country radio i mean it's not like a twangy country song it's more like a soft rock song basically so um but it, it was and terry gibbs was i believe the uh, like named the new country artist of the year in 1981 or something like that but um <laughs> i didn't really like this song though when it was out because this was played quite a lot uh-huh. on country radio back then and terry gibbs i thought she was a guy first of all and i thought she was being like trying to hide it like, I have this conspiracy theory in my nine year old brain that, and you know, that she was a man and um, she wanted everybody to think she was a woman. It was almost like a proto um, boy George type of thing. And the thing was, is she wore glasses because she was blind. And, but, and I knew she was blind because I used to hear that on the country radio back then. But I thought she was also pertaining to be blind as like a double blind to prove that she was a woman so that nobody realized that she was actually a man. I don't know. I was nine years old. Give me a break. So, but uh, I don't know. This song is always, even now that I've gone past the idiotic conspiracy theory I had back then. um, It's, you know, it's, it's pretty, Uh yeah, but it was a really big hit. So. That leads us to number twenty-four, "Precious." To see, me by and Phil Seymour. This is kind of a power pop classic, and uh, Phil Seymour was actually a one-hit wonder twice. Um, he was ri- with originally a member of the Dwight Twilley band. Um, the Dwight Twilley band was actually a duo; it wasn't just Dwight Twilley. Um, it was Dwight Twilley played guitar and sang. Phil Seymour played drums and also sang. Um, they originally named Oyster, but the record company made them change the name, and that actually kind of led to the band splitting up because um, Phil was doing like half the work and he didn't have his name on it. But um, he also sang background vocals on Tom Petty's Breakdown and American Girl. Um, they are also label mates at the time. Um, but... This was his only solo hit. Um, It's on a lot of power pop compilations. Really great song. Um, But he never really got a chance to follow it up because um, almost immediately after he put out the follow-up album to this one, um, his record company folded, and that was basically the end of his solo career. And he ended up in... Another band called the Textones, which were kind of like a roots rock band, but that ended up getting short cut short after he was diagnosed with lymphoma, and he ultimately ended up dying pretty young of lymphoma, unfortunately. But um, this does have an actual video to it, and it looks like somebody actually spent quite a bit of money on it for 81 videos, and... Um in it, Seymour' is kind of a Humphrey Bogart type, and he's pursuing kind of a shadowy gun mall type through an office building and It was filmed at the Bradbury building in l a which was used as a filming location for a lot of noir movies back in the forties and ended up being featured in Blade Runner the year after this yeah yeah very, very famous building, yep. A lot of wrought iron on the interior and all that. Yeah, it's been been. Say, if you you you'd, you'd know it if you you wouldn't know it just cold, right? You know and if you saw while I was looking for that, I also found a clip of Dick Clark interviewing him on American Bandstand, and almost the entire video was, or almost the entire interview was um, Dick Clark kind of apologizing for not recognizing him from the Dwight Toley band, so. <laughs> Well, Dick Clark was a kind sword. Exactly. to and seal the world. I, I probably could stand getting self quarantined with this song. It's a good song. Okay. Yep. Yeah. But fair enough. To twenty three for you, um, Grover Washington Jr. with Bill Weathers, just the two of us. This is a reluctant skip. Um, I had to skip something, and this song is so well-known, and there's not much I can add to it, so this is a skip. That leads us to number 22, I Can't Stand It, by Eric Clapton, and for some reason credited, and his band. Yeah, this is a skip for me. Um, It's alright, but I had to skip something, I guess. Has some good drums in it. Really good drums in it. Of course that's yeah, yeah, what Eric exactly. Clapton is known for his drumming. But moving on to 20 for 21 for you um Sheena Easton with Morning Train 9 to 5. Yeah, I I whenever I hear this song I think of our dad because I <laughs> okay. think he was a big fan of this song. And he was uh, and and I get it because it has that Manhattan Transfer-ish type of um sound to it and i think he really did have a transfer yeah and they were there he did and that sound was popular at that time so i think that's that's my guess as to why i've never really asked him but and i'm not sure he ever uh actually ever wrote a train (laughs) to work either but whatever so it was the biggest hit for sheena easton it's pretty innocent sounding song like a lot of her early songs were And she's a pretty long fucking way from Sugar Walls, which came about four years later. But, uh, so she's like on a different, she, she, uh, she met Prince and definitely in the uh, mid eighties. So, uh, so, but this is, uh, this was her, uh, as I mentioned, this was her biggest hit. So, um, but for not my favorite, you know, it's a good song. A lot of people love this song. There was a lot of accolades from, respected songwriters i guess who was it somebody i read about um had this in a box of singles as one of the best singers huh. of all time it was some songwriter i guess I right should yeah put that on my cheat sheet but so but um but that also leads me to my long distance dedication matt we have to tip our caps because this is actually Well, it's, I guess, a real dedication, but I'm going to go with number 97, and that would be Lady by the recently deceased Kenny Rogers, who we've Uh discussed on the countdown before. He cropped up a lot, just passed away um, over the weekend. Um, And uh, tip of the cap, Kenny Rogers, at this stage of the game in particular, he was huge. This was actually his only song on the chart. Which that was a rare that would have been a rarity in the late '70s, early '80s. He usually had right. several songs on the chart, um, and I'm talking about the Hot 100, much less the you know like the country chart and the adult contemporary chart. But um, Kenny Rogers is kind of hard to explain if you weren't there. Like if you try to explain to somebody who was born in the '80s and didn't live through the Kenny Rogers period, um, probably would be hard to understand why he was so popular. I don't know that I can convey why he was popular, um, but he somehow filled a niche between, you know, he, he really became the first country adult contemporary artist, you know, that was like acceptable to like, he was just crossed over just enough to get to people who wanted to hear some, you know, pretty non-threatening type of music, but he was still country enough where stuff like the gambler and coward of the County um had some right you know yeah. legitimacy i guess so um is he the greatest country artist of all time no is he the greatest pop artist of all time no did he kind of hop on whatever trend happened to pop down the pike oh yeah in the late I, 70s yeah, sure, early 80s yeah. definitely but he was part of driving the trend too so in a way you got to give him credit for that We listened to damn near nothing but Kenny Rogers in this period. We had Kenny Rogers' greatest hits on a cassette. Um, Probably the first time we ever had a cassette player um, in a car. Yeah, we had one in the station. I I think I'm remembering that right. Um, um, And we played the shit out of Kenny Rogers' greatest hits. So Lady, which is actually the song that was at 97, was on there. And so part of the soundtrack of my youth, you know, definitely – um, was huge, and I got a tip. Guy, the guy passed away. He was a right. huge star. Got to give him his dap. So this one goes. One goes out to the gambler. He finally, uh, right, know, walked off into the sunset. So yeah, respect to Kenny Rogers. So, um, that moves us on to number twenty. Let's see. Which is and Fade away by Bruce this is kind of a forgotten Springsteen single i i don't think i've ever heard this on the radio um so follow it was a follow-up single to hungry heart which was probably springsteen's biggest hit to this point and it's kind of a slow ballad kind of typical slow springsteen ballad and um let's see um a lot of springsteen experts kind of like his bi- biography. Ah, biographers think that this choice of a single kind of prevented River from becoming a bigger hit than it was Um, but this still made it up to number 20 somehow and this was its peak Um, Springsteen dropped the song from his set list after the River tour and it's only played it a couple times since then so kind of leads me to believe that he wasn't really that big of a fan of it either and um, it doesn't have a video um Springsteen didn't make a video until dancing in the dark, so um, the best I could find was a live performance from that era, and it's pretty underwhelming so <laughs> okay. fair enough, I have nothing to add about that song <laughs> i did i did I did my homework on it. Okay, we have Randy Meisner at number 19 with Hearts on Fire. <clears throat> yeah, Randy Meisner from the Eagles. And this song was, this was the peak of this song. And uh, it's not bad at all. It kind of sounds like a power pop Eagle song, if that makes any sense. Uh, guitar is pretty prominent on it. And it's more jangle guitar than kind of show off Eagles guitar. But um I like Randy Meisner, and I like his Eagles songs. Take It to the Limit is one of my favorites. He sang that. Um, You know, he had Fall in Love Again, which is on the Hotel California album, also a good song before he left the Eagles. And um, this album was on his second solo album, which was actually pretty critically acclaimed. And um, he had some help from the Eagles. Glenn Frey and Don Henley both sang backup, backup vocals on some of this album. And unfortunately, Randy Meisner's, Solo career really kind of stalled after this, and then later on in life uh, he had a lot of health and health problems he had some alcohol problems throughout his life and uh uh it's unfortunate but uh but I like Randy Meisner, so toast to him and this is a good uh good example of kind of a early eighties uh power pop song okay so that At number eighteen this week in nineteen eighty one treat her right by Pat Benatar right, and this was kind of the um, peak of her popularity, she had just put out the Crimes of Passion album, which this was on, and that went quadruple platinum. And to give you an idea of how big she was at the time, she her image was kind of spoofed in Fast Times at Ridgemont High, which came out later in 1981. Um, there's a scene where Demone's in the cafeteria. I think I think it was Demone. It was either Demone or Phoebe Cates. Kind of pointing out um, all the different pa- Benatars in their cafeteria, um, basically copying her look with the short hair, uh, the bandana, and the striped shirts. I'm still pissed off at Demone because he ripped me off on cheap trick tickets. <laughs> right? Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. But um, this was kind of her in rock mode. Um, it's a cover of a hard rock song by a hard rock band called Riff Raff and Benatar's version is actually a lot better. Riff Raff's is kind of almost proto hair metal, I guess. Um but there was no video for this song um but I did kind of stumble onto a contemporary interview with her from um 2020. And it reminded me a lot of pieces that major networks did on Madonna from a few years later. Basically the whole gist of it was she's popular. We don't, we don't really get it. Um, She's going in directions that we don't understand, but here it is basically. Yeah. Um, That kind of stuff. I mean, Pat Benatar has kind of been forgotten about how influential she was. I mean, you mentioned the thing about fashion, but, um, you know, she really was the premier rock, female rock artist of the early 80s and probably deserves a lot more credit for it. I mean, um, she, I think she should be in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, you know, for what that's worth. But um, Yeah, I think she should, too. Song in particular isn't one of my favorites, but she has a lot of good ones. And, um, you know, she really was. No, it's funny that Blondie's in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. They had a much shorter run on the charts than Pat Benatar did. So, uh, yeah, that's true. I mean, she basically went from '79 all the way to probably like '86 or '87, I guess. Yeah, my charts. When did uh um? Yeah, that's one of the late '80s. Uh, all fired up. When did that come out? That was that was really late '80s, wasn't it? That was, like, 88 or so, but the, she had, like, kind of, like, a dry period for, like, a couple of years before that came out. She was pretty much money right through the early part of 86, I would say. Yeah, yeah. Let's see, but um, let's move on to 17 for you, which is Cliff Richard with A Little In Love. Uh, this is getting skipped, so... The, the the young ones would be disappointed at you. They can, they can. So number <laughs> six for you is Games People Play by the Alan Parsons Project. Let's see. And Parsons kind of built up a reputation as an engineer and producer before he started the Alan Parsons Project. Um, he engineered the Beatles <laughs> Abbey Road and Let It Be. um that kind of turned into production work in the 70s. Um, he worked with Pink Floyd, um, produced Dark Side of the Moon, um, also worked with the Hollies, Al Stewart, and um, the Scottish band Pilot, who is best known for magic, but they were actually the backing band on this song. Um, the project was kind of an attempt by Parsons to use the studio as an instrument, just kind of seeing what he could do with the studio and there weren't any official members of the project besides himself and eric wolfson who was a multi-instrumentalist and occasional singer um, He sang eyes in the sky but on this track he had um lenny zacatek saying it and zacatek was a native of pakistan but he was um, the lead singer of the funk disco band Gonzalez, and the backing group, like I mentioned before, was Pilot. And um, let's see, it's decent song, I guess. I, I would out of songs that are titled "Games People Play," I'd probably rate it third behind uh, Joe South and the Spinners. Um, three different songs, by the way. Yeah, that's fair. I would, I would agree with that. <laughs> right but it's it's also i mean Ellen parsons project um they've kind of been critically reassessed a little bit almost because they are like a studio craft band kind of like almost a progish version of steely dan i guess so but um there was a video for this too and it's basically them recording it in the studio and um The only things notable about it are that Zacatech is wearing a calculator watch, and Parsons wearing is wearing a trucker's cap with foam devil horns. So outfits have sex police on it. Un- unfortunately, no, no, <laughs> didn't didn't have any of Rod Stewart's band members of the project. So what makes the games people play thing so confusing too is that the spinners games people play actually has a secondary title to it it's uh what is it it's um uh they can't they just can't stand it or so it's like it's off the hook in the chorus it's like oh it's, yeah yeah under both titles which makes it even more confusing i've always thought it was called games people play but um and that's what they sing mainly in the chorus but that's the number one games people play to me. right that's a great but, but um This is also one of those songs where, like, you know, when you're like hearing a song and you hear like a lyric and then it like immediately turns into a different song for you. For this one, um, the part where he sings, I don't want to live here no more. I don't want, I don't want this way. And then it immediately for me, it turns into jailbreak by (laughs) ACDC. So it goes, I don't want to live here no more. I don't want to break rocks on the chain gate. I want to bust out a break free Want to make a jail break, but. Okay. (laughs) Okay. This song would also be in the hall of fame of sports bumper music too. Like that. Yeah. Yeah. That's true. That's true. That was played over like an NFL, like going to commercial or baseball or basketball or whatever. So but oh yeah def- definitely and um, well serious by alan parsons project is pretty famously used as intro music for the chicago bulls at the michael jordan years so what is like that let's go to break the celtics lead the 76 to 87 da, da, <laughs> da, da. yeah yeah let's see but let's move on here to number 15 um Good song title for this era, um, Don't Stand So Close to Me by The Police. The police were practicing six feet away from each other, did this song. This is a historic song for me. This is the first video I remember, I ever remember seeing. Hmm. I probably saw it long after it actually came out, but um, HBO Video Jukebox used to play this one a lot, and that's where I actually saw videos for the first time, because we didn't we didn't have MTV, I don't think, until we moved to back to Wisconsin. Or if, I, I thought we had it for a little bit in Texas. We did. We we didn't watch it. I mean, you know, I I don't think that was really part of our lexicon until we got to Wisconsin. But um, so I remember the video with where it's a pretty literal. Video Sting plays a teacher, um, you know, and the song talks about the teacher um, and his. Um, you know, crushing on uh, one of the students, basically. But probably my favorite single by the police. I don't think it's my favorite police song. They have some, um, you know, songs that are on some of their early albums that are pretty good, That but that weren't hits. Um, but of their hits, this is probably my favorite one. So hmm. I'll roll with this one. It's pretty good. So yeah, it's yeah, decent. Yeah. But, you know, just a good straight up rock song before they started getting a little pretentious. But um, right I'll give it up for the police on this one. Good stuff. Yeah. So moving on, another good song. Number 14, While You See a Chance by Steve Winwood. Right. And we had your synth rating for whatever other episodes, um, the cheddar rating. And the synths on this are very sharp cheddar, like a (laughs) 20-year-aged sharp cheddar. Right. That's one of the reasons why I like this song. Yeah. And it's... Honestly, one of my favorite songs from the '80s. Both this and Valerie by Steve Winwood just kind of go. Um, both great songs. Not really that much of a fan of the rest of Winwood stuff from the '80s, but really like both of these songs. And um, the intro of this, which kind of features Oregon on on its own, was almost an accident. Um, basically, um. The rest of the backing tracks ended up getting raced accidentally, so they just ended up with the Oregon intro, and they decided to keep it instead of re-recording it, um, which actually it's a happy mistake because it makes that song work. Because it then it's like the, the the build up to the you know the actual meat of the song, which is more up tempo, I think. Oh yeah, 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 It definitely works out, and. um, <laughs> the video for this is very very early 80s um has winwood kind of playing the song on a on his synth in front of a glowing pyramid and there's dancers in like black spandex bodysuits kind of cavorting around the pyramid and like showing a mirror into the light and there's a fog machine running and it's pretty much the pinnacle of 1981 video i i i i'd have to say sounds like a like a rejected or like a outtake from Land of the Lost like they were in the pylon <laughs> okay <laughs> i i don't i don't really remember that part of Land of the Lost but or <laughs> so but it's a it's a great song i i mean would love to be Trapped in self isolation with this song, so this is the best song that's come up yet. And um, oh yeah, definitely my favorite Steve Winwood solo song. Also one of my favorite songs from the '80s as well. I don't dislike some of the other Steve Winwood stuff from the '80s as much as you probably do, but um, but this is good stuff. This is when he was still sort of at the vanguard of what music was about because that kind of synthesizer stuff was still pretty innovative at that time and um, oh yeah yeah the later 80s when he was more popular um then he was just kind of you know following you know making stuff that was you know crafted for maximum popularity so um, right at this point he was popular and he was you know still kind of on the cusp of you know at least synthesizer music so but yeah very cool song yep See, but let's move on to thirteen, which is "Cool in the Gang" with "Celebration." Well, this would probably be the best-known song on the chart, um, and it had gone to number one already. I, you know, it's funny. I, I don't, I, I, for some reason, associate this song with the later period of the early '80s, anyway. But it was actually released in 1980 itself. The song was inspired by the Koran, and uh, huh. the it was about the celebration of the angels in heaven when god created adam and so uh the songwriters from cool and the gang were inspired by that so that's a real noble enterprise but literally they know that this song would um first of all become one of the biggest hits of the early 80s but also basically became the go-to song for every wedding reception and championship team celebration uh pretty much from that point forward so um, it's a great song. I mean, I, I can't knock this song at all, um, because it is, um, of you know, it's, it's a good tempo R&B song and it achieves what it's, you know, sets out to achieve. Um, but I can understand how some people would get real tired of it. Cause you do hear it quite a bit, even to this day. So, um, Oh yeah. Yeah, definitely. Good song. And, you know, <laughs> but the funny thing was <laughs> whenever I hear this song, um, I think of my great friend and uh, former uh, college roommate, Brian Smith. And he would, whenever we heard this song, he'd be like, yeah, man. And he's a like, first of all, we're Milwaukee Brewer fans. Matt and I are, he's from St. Louis he was Cardinals fan played each other in the world series in 1982. And the Cardinals won in seven games. And every time this song came on, he'd be like, Hey golden, it's the Cardinals celebration song. And I'm like, man, <laughs> fuck you, I go, first of all, I pretty much think every team from about 1980 on used this as their celebration song. So I'll just leave right. it right. But so, um, so yeah. So this was used, this was thrown in my face once in a while. I have scars, <laughs> Matt. I have scars from that. <laughs> Great friend of this day and fuck the 82 Cardinals. So that's all I'm going to say. Yep. But that leads us to number 12 kiss on my list by Holland Oates let's see and this was the very beginning this was the song that kind of jump started like their success in the 80s it was eventually made up to number one um was their second number one hit um rich girl went to number one in the 70s but it was the first of their 13 top 10 hits in the 80s um It was written by Daryl Hall with Jana Allen, and Allen was the sister of Hall's girlfriend, Sarah, who inspired a lot of their songs, but most notably Sarah Smile, which was a big hit for Hall & Oates. And it was written with the intent of Allen recording the song herself, Um, but Hall & Oates' manager heard the demo vocal that Hall recorded for it kind of as a guide for her and insisted that he save the song for himself and ultimately ended up working out for Hall & Oates. Huge hit. Um Still gets played on the radio today. Kind of one of Hall & Oat's best known songs. Um The video for this was played on the first day of MTV, but it wasn't a proper video. It was just a clip from one of their concerts and it doesn't have nearly the energy of the studio recording. It's just kind of blah, actually. But, um, but yeah, I mean, this is start of Hall and Oates in the eighties. At one point, um, Gary Hall even said that he was the Beatles of the eighties. So this was the start of all that scene. in a way, I guess that's true. They were huge, and of course, um, most of us in, in the Golden family have been big Holland & Oates fans of that period. This is actually one of my lesser favorites, though, the ones they put out, but it's, you know, but it de- definitely did launch their trademark sound, and um, you know, they actually, but I think they actually improved on it as they went along, so. Mm-hmm. let see, but let's see, yeah, I'd I kind of agree with that i mean i i thought they were kind of like getting better up until like whenever i think method of modern love was like the first stinker from them adult education is right there as well yeah that was same album i think but yeah i think adult education was on the the greatest hits yeah, yeah, you might be right. Yeah, I think you are right about that. So actually, that's what but, sound is bad now. But at the time, I was like black. Right. Yeah. I cannot say it any stronger. Black. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But let's move on to number eleven, which is Stevie Wonder with "I Ain't Gonna Stand for It." I ain't gonna stand for it. That's my terrible answer. came from the Hotter Than July album, and this is probably the only. 80s Stevie Wonder hit that sounds like it could have fit on one of his iconic 70s albums. It's um, It wouldn't have been the best song on any of them, but it feels like it's in that mode. Um, Certainly more so. Like if you hear I Just Called to Say I Love You, you would think that like every song in Inner Visions would gang up and beat the shit out of it. But, um, you know, so this song is probably closer to his 70s sound than his 80s sound but it's a pretty good song. Um it is a little overproduced and a little bit dense but but I dig it. It's pretty good. Yeah, yeah, it's it's decent. So but it's also not one of his most memorable ones. And you you hear it on the radio once in a while but you don't hear it that often so um certainly not like superstition or um living for the city or anything like that. So, but Right. That leads us to number ten, What Kind of Fool by Barbara Streisand and Barry Gibb. Yeah, and I don't really like this one. It's kind of run of the mill duet ballad. Um it was on the guilty album, which was kind of a big album for both of them. Kind of collaboration between Streisand and the beat and the BGs, but um yeah. Don't really like this one. If it's I guilty if it, of... <laughs> Ton, imitated guilty there, but um... halfway kind of like guilty. I have to admit, a like guilty pleasure. Ha ha ha. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but any, anyway, it, this was this was its peak on the chart. Um, did make it to number one on the adult contemporary chart, and it was the actual. Number one on the adult contemporary chart this week. So, um, yeah, we should so, do an adult contemporary chart sometime. We we, we should. That that that'd, that'd be kind of interesting. Would be terrible, but it would still be fun. Yeah, yeah. Let's see, but moving on to number nine. This is also one of the very first songs I remember hearing. Um, Eddie Rabbit with "I Love a Rainy Night." this song was massive that number one on the country chart number one on the hot 100 number one on the adult contemporary chart and eddie rabbit was uh, king shit there for like a year or two in the early 80s um, um you know but he's a pretty unlikely country icon i mean he was born in brooklyn he was raised in new jersey but for somehow uh growing up in the 50s was really into country and um he actually started out before his music career even started he worked as a mental hospital attendant back in the late 50s but then eventually broke into music he moved to nashville in the 1960s he wrote elvis's kentucky rain which is one of my favorite elvis songs Hmm. he wrote a number one ronnie milsap song in the mid-70s while he was eating captain crunch which is kind of (laughs) cool He became a solo artist. Is it about Captain Crunch? Nothing to do with Captain Crunch, but I think it's cool that <laughs> Captain Crunch inspired him. Okay, who, who, if anybody, can be inspired by no less a figure than Captain Crunch? Right. I wish I knew the <laughs> other characters on Captain Crunch because, like in the old cart, like the commercials, I think they actually had characters. I, I, I'm pretty sure you're right about that. I I don't think they had a name, right. but. That's a- I, didn't he have a dog too, or something like that? I don't remember. Sure. It, <laughs> okay. So, anyway, Rabbit became a solo artist in the mid '70s, and then by the late '70s, he became pretty big. He had um, this was his biggest song, but he had super super um, or suspicion, not suspicious. I was getting my Stevie Wonder still was in my brain, but um, which was also a big country hit. But I have no idea why, because it doesn't sound anything at all like a country song it's like straight up soft rock but anyway eddie rabbit was really big for a little while there kind of embodied the crossover pop country phenomenon of uh, the early 80s and um and yes this song was quite ubiquitous at the time so oh yeah yeah that leads us to number eight not a band that many people would peg for 1981 but the winner takes it all by abba Right, and this was a breakup song and um, Björn Oveas and Agnetha Falstog from ABBA had just recently split up and she sings the song and he co-wrote the song with Benny Anderson but um, he denies the song is about them. It's like um, Swedish Fleetwood Mac. Yeah, and it would, it would get more Fleetwood Mac-ish on their next album after the other couple in the band broke up. And a couple of songs on that album of one of us and one of us. And um, when all, when all is said and done are very explicitly about their divorces, but um, this one, I guess, wasn't. <laughs> um, it was their last top 10 hit in the U S and like most ABBA singles, it was a huge international hit. Um And Abba was kind of early adopters of music video. So there was a music video of this and in the video, they're out at a restaurant at a lake and everybody's having a good time except for Agneta. And um, she's the one singing the song, obviously. So, and like all other Abba videos, there's a segment where um they have a close-up of each band member singing the background vocals, which is kind of like an AMA trademark or AMA video trademark. like doing that. It worked out best in uh, uh Knowing Me and Knowing You, or they did it on like a spinning wheel type of thing. Right, right. That's pretty- and also, I think an SOS, it was either SOS or Fernando, but they have a like... Like, at a bottom of, like, a ravine, like, singing up to the camera. Yeah. Too. I think it was. That's. Yeah. But who cares about all of that, Matt? Who's better looking, Agnetha or Frida? Let's see. In this video, I would say Agnetha, just because Frida's hair is weird in this. But um, she... kind of, like, earlier on, I would have gone with Frida. You have a perm. Yeah, like, weird red-colored perm in this. Yeah. I'd go with freedom, but that's just me. Right. See, but um, for self quarantine, I yeah, I don't know about this one. Maybe maybe a different ABBA song, but probably not this one. You'd probably go with. um, um, uh, I don't know. You'd go with Waterloo. (laughs) Okay, not not Waterloo either maybe SOS. Okay. <laughs> Fine. Dis Waterloo. Actually, Waterloo is pretty bad, but I don't know what ABBA song. I go with Summer Night City. That song rules. Yeah. I I yeah. That people don't know that are actually really good. And that's one of them. That's like just straight up hard disco song. Right. <laughs> let's see. But let's move on to number seven here. Neil Diamond with Hello Again. Ah, see, this is where the dross really kicks in for me. So, Hello Again is from the jazz singer. It's a ballad. <laughs> if you like overwrought ballads with heavy strings, if that's your thing, dig in. If overwrought ballads, overwrought ballads with strings make you want to hurt yourself, I suggest you don't listen to this song because you will want to hurt yourself listening to it it is definitely a late period neil diamond ballad which means it's pretty bad and um if i had to self-isolate with this song um i'd probably hurt myself so it's terrible (laughs) yeah yeah It's, it's it's really bad so those neil diamond songs have not aged well at all so Yeah. Yeah. Pretty much all the ones from this era are about the same. And yeah, they definitely haven't. So although his last hit, I heard it on a countdown last week. It was from 82. I think it was, Mm -hmm. was, it's I'm alive. And it's more of a high tempo song. That song, I'm not saying it's good because it's not, but it's like 10,000 times better than this. I'll say that. Hmm. From the Heartlight album. Ah. Inspired by E.T. (laughs) <laughs> right. that is right yeah I forgot about that Errol Bayer Bear Sager uh, thought it was like he's like Neil Diamond E.T. was cool let's call your album Heartlight and we'll write a song sort of ripping off E.T. and he did and he had a big hit from it <laughs> yeah yeah anyway number six is Rapture by Blondie let's see and Debbie Harry is a rap pioneer ugh <sighs> <laughs> this this was the first song with a rap verse to make it to number one um, it was the first rap video ever played on MTV it was played twice on MTV's first day and she was probably the first white rapper so Beastie Boys and Eminem they have her to thank and she was the first example of a non-rap artist trying to rap which Kick the door open for Lou Reed, um, Brian Wilson, Dee Dee Ramone, and Rush, and and the so. what? And the Clash. Clash might have actually been around the same time, I think. Yeah, because they they basically. um, Anista has rap on it, doesn't it? Yeah, you're right about that. Yeah, yeah. So this was yeah it was not right around the same time. And they both the clash and Blondie were kind of drafting on what was popular in New York at the time. I think the clash were living in New York at the time. Magnificent seven. That's what I was trying to think of. Right. But, um, at the time, hip hop was almost entirely a New York phenomenon and it was kind of hip to be into hip hop and Blondie were just kind of latching on to that. um, but um, not really that great of a song. Oh. Um, the rap is horrible. <laughs> probably probably one of the worst raps of all time, but um, uh-huh. there, there is a video for this, and in the first half of it, Blondie are um, having a party in a basement apartment, and there's women kind of dressed up in, like, Santa Rea outfits hanging out with them, and there's... Guy dressed up like a voodoo god, but he also kind of looks like Flavor Flav, kind of spying on him. And the second half, when Debbie's rapping, um, she's on a New York Street set in front of graffiti artists. One of them is Jean-Michel Basquiat, who's kind of a famous artist. And there's a guy in an Uncle Sam costume, guy in an Indian headdress. Ultimately, the voodoo god ends up dancing with her and Blondie ends up following the voodoo god out and they're wearing, when they emerge off the set, they're wearing sunglasses with flashing lights. So presumably the voodoo god has turned them into zombies, I'm guessing. Yeah. A little bit too much information, but I, I will say that, like you said, when I say that the Clash did quote unquote rap and Blondie of course did quote unquote rap, I'm not saying they did good rap. Both examples are pretty horrible. So Yeah, it's <laughs> it's, it's it's terrible. <laughs> it Remind me of if you ever if you've ever seen it, um, in the two thousands there was a British show called Look Around You. And it was a take uh-huh. of early eighties educational type shows. Like for here, it would have been like three, two, one contact. And they did this episode It's on YouTube, and it's the whole episode is funny as hell. But it was uh, music 2000, but it was portrayed as if it was 1981. And they had a British guy come on there and introduce the British audience to rap. (laughs) The whole thing is him just going, "I'm rapping all day and I'm rapping all night. I'm rapping to the beat and I'm rapping just right." And then he just keeps going, "I'm rapping. I'm rapping. I'm rap rap rapping. I'm rap (laughs) rapping." Hilarious. And it... There, there, there was a similar skit on Mr. Show, where um, there was at the end of the skit there was a rap battle, and I, I don't really want to go into detail in the skit, but um, Baba Odenkirk was also the Dalai Lama in the skit, and he had to win a rap battle, and his rap was. Rap, rap, ribbity rap, rap, get rapid with it. Hey, get rapid with it. Ho oh. Yeah. And then they go to the other rapper and he like rips his chain off, throws it at the ground and says, Man, his science is too tight. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, and the ghost of Tchaikovsky was in that British in the look around you. You need to go find that on YouTube. It's really funny. But <laughs> Okay. Yeah. It's very easy to make fun of especially white artists who decided to introduce themselves to the early years of hip-hop so right and i don't know whether to give them credit or to give them a demerit for cultural appropriation i mean i really i don't really care for the term cultural appropriation but um it's not like they advanced the form it's not like suddenly rap became part of the lexicon i mean that took a while you know oh yeah yeah not in 1981 but so right see but let's move on to number five here which is Don McLean with crying we have to move on I mean we don't have to we can just pretend <clears throat> number five was vacant that would we... <laughs> crying is a Roy Orbison or, or Roy as I learned how to speak English here Roy Orbison cover um Don McLean record I will say this for this song he recorded worse songs Almost every artist known a man recorded better songs. Um, It's yet another stringy ballad. Um, Don McLean is not one of my favorites. I just think he's, he's like, I don't know this for a fact, but if you've ever seen Animal House and the part where John Belushi smashes, uh, it's actually Stephen Bishop in the movie, but smashed Mm -hmm. the guy's guitar with the real oversensitive singer-songwriter type stuff. It's like, it's actually Don McLean that he should be smashing an inter- instrument from. I just don't get Don McLean. Even America, yeah. which is, you know, his big huge hit, which is at least a little bit up tempo. You know, I think of stuff like Vincent and stuff like that. It's just like it's like music Yeah, yeah, Vincent's lousy. I mean, and this isn't as bad as all that, but it's still not good. Um, he's trying to outstring Neil Diamond on this one too, and it's just like, uh, no. I have no idea why this is number five on the charts i'm not sure what was in the zeitgeist in 1981 that made this you know people like damn this is really good it's like no but (laughs) that's you know but uh you know i'm not following my advice to uh if you can't say something nice don't say anything at all so okay move on to a very well-known song number four is nine to five by dolly parton Right, and this was a huge hit. Um, It was actually number one on the um, charts the week before this. Um, It was also number one on the adult contemporary and the country chart. And it was written for 9 to 5, which was um, Parton's debut as an actress. um, Started with Lily Tomlin and Jane Fonda. Um, But it was nominated for an Oscar and went to... Grammys also and um, kind of Dolly's signature song and um, the percussion and the verses kind of mimic a typewriter which um, in the movie 9 to 5 she did play a secretary so it was kind of going off of that and there's even a typewriter bell at the end of each line and the song still gets played on the radio so I'm wondering if like people the generation younger of us than us who didn't grow up having typewriters around even pick up on that yeah like if you're if your kids listen to this do you think they would notice that i asked them about a typewriter once like recently and i was like i asked them how like how do you think a typewriter works and it's like um like how does it actually print like the letters onto the page how does that work and they're like no and you know to be fair they have no reason to know I'm like, you have to th- put a ribbon in there and it types over the top of it. And they're like, I think they may have even said something. They're probably joking. They probably said, oh, you hit the print button. So <laughs> typewriters are definitely old school technology. And it reminds me of when I, I bought a record player um, a couple months ago. And it was hilarious when my kids saw it, especially my son. He just looked at it like with a wonderment, like, oh my God, look at this old ass you know, piece of technology and right. in a way they were, they were, it was so to them so old that they actually had like, like, how does this work? And it's like, okay, so you put the needle down and there's grooves in the record. My daughter was joking that, um, Oh, do they download the grooves onto the record? You know, that kind of thing. She was, you knew <laughs> that wasn't how they did it. But, um, but my son was like, I'm like, do you want to play a record? And he was like, super nervous and my daughter too, to some degree. About actually, you know, like, am I gonna break it if I put the needle in the wrong spot? I mean, it was right, it was cute, and um. But yes, I, I'm sure. I, I mean, what would be even funnier would be if you actually put a kid on a typewriter and you don't have a backspace and you don't have. I mean, he- hell, me too. I mean, I, I, if you put me on a typewriter these days, I would struggle. I mean, oh yeah, yeah, me too. Yeah, backspacing mistakes and you know all of that. I mean. It would, uh, it would be. What would be really interesting is my wife um, uh, trained in that field, and how she would do like a words per minute on a typewriter as opposed to a keyboard these days. Oh yeah, yeah. I I, I bet she'd she'd probably do good. But you actually had to have some finger muscle build up to do that. I mean, sometimes those typewriters had pretty heavy keys, and especially the ones over on the on, on the extreme part of each side. Um see that's Oh yeah the shift the shift on those yeah I hunt and peck to this day and you can hunt and peck on a typewriter but you definitely get punished a lot more for hunting and pecking on a typewriter there's no no doubt about it Oh yeah yeah So yes that would be fascinating but this song and the movie were very much a part of the vibe of the time and um you know I always later on I was like when I started working myself, I was like nine to five. Uh, that means they don't get a lunch break. I like was overthinking it. So <laughs> you know, they're, they don't build a lunch break in the nine to five. If you're working an eight hour shift. Oh, I mean, yeah, I guess so. Yeah. Labor laws, look them up. So <laughs> anyway, this was a big song and, you know, beyond country too. It was just part of the, the nine to five movie was a big hit. And Um, you know, so Dabney Coleman was a bad guy and he was a good bad guy in movies. Right. The the go-to bad guy in pretty much half the movies made between like 1978 and like 1987. Oh yeah. Yeah. And then he just like totally disappeared off the earth after that. Yeah. He was in, he was in Dragnet. God. Was he? I, I haven't seen that in a while. Was he the leader of the people against goodness and normalcy? I believe so. Or no? He, uh, yeah, I think he was. And he he played, or he played a preacher, or he was both. It was a dual role. I don't remember. <laughs> Read him the rights. Read him their rights. All I know is his line in that movie was, "He's got balls as big as church. he had like a lisp. He's got balls as big as turk bales." Okay. (laughs) well on on that note we should probably move on to number three which is um, the best of times by sticks yeah i think you did this on purpose so you wouldn't have to talk about sticks one of your favorite bands but (laughs) i'm told that on the paradise theater album which is what the best of times is from that this is sort of used as a melody for several of the other songs on the paradise theater album which is a concept album. Um, But I'll tell you what, I'll be damned if I'm going to go listen to fucking paradise theater to find out because um, I just, Matt, I I make fun of him because he used to really slag sticks when we were younger, um, which is fine. And I don't really get sticks either. And I had a lot of friends, especially for this era of sticks who were like really into paradise theater and they play it once in a while. And I'd listen to it. I'd be, I just didn't get it. So Mm -hmm. they've always sticks has always struck me as a band that thought they were smarter than they really were. They kind of remind me of rush in that respect, although they weren't as technically uh, gifted as rush was in terms of playing their instruments, but it always seemed like they were trying too hard or something like that. I don't know. And, and, Uh and Dennis DeYoung, who did write this song, lead singer of sticks, um, even to his bandmates, was kind of a knob. I mean, he was... Um, he definitely wanted to take them... It's sort of like the Chicago dynamic, where you had um, like Peter Cetera and maybe a couple of the other band members who wanted to take them in one direction, and then you had other band members who wanted to go a completely different direction. You know, guys like Tommy Shaw and all that wanted to basically maintain their bona fides as a rock band. Dynasty, yeah, Definitely moving them more towards Adult Contemporary, which is where he ended up when he went solo. But um, I don't know. I've never been able to get sticks. This isn't a terrible song or anything like that. But um, it was a huge hit, obviously. But, um, yeah. Yeah. Of their time, but they can stick around in their time as far as I'm concerned. But (laughs) okay. so that leads us to number two, which is Woman by John Lennon. And this was the first John Lennon's single released after he was shot Um, it's released a month after he died and it's um, very adult contemporary Um, people always like to speculate what direction Lennon would have gone in if he had survived Um, like people making ridiculous predictions like oh John Lennon would have been way into gangster rap and stuff like that What? Yeah every every once in a while like on the anniversary of his death you get like people doing speculations about that. Who and in the it, heck would I, have thought he was it would be in a gangster rap? I, I mean that be... whoever whoever wrote the article that I read that was oh my like that. That's that's a bad take. That's a bad definitely. But if I had to make a bet, I guess he would probably just continue doing stuff like this. Um Actually, at this point, he was probably more middle of the road than McCartney was, which is kind of a role reversal. But um, Lennon did kind of dip into kind of this adult contemporary stuff. And um, the song was written kind of as an update to the song Girl, which was on Rubber Soul. And dedicated to Yoko, obviously. But... um, there is a video for this, and it's um, mainly just archival footage of John and Yoko walking through Central Park, and it's kind of mixed with shots of Yoko walking through the park on her own, which is kind of tugs at the heartstrings a little bit because she did just lose him, but but yeah. So. I don't mind this song. It's okay. I know, I know it's a ballad, but it's... Um... I like it better than just like starting over, which is from that same. Oh yeah. It's definitely a better song than that. It's okay. That's fine. I mean, obviously it yeah. became a bigger hit because of his death, but that's one thing I really didn't realize. I mean, double fantasy, the album came out before he died and right. he actually wasn't doing very well on the charts. Um, unfortunately, until he was um, assassinated. So, um, you know, but obviously many of those songs have become pretty well known since then but um and this one being one of them but i've always thought this is one of his better solo songs i've always thought john lennon was all over the place solo career wise i mean all the solo beatles were but um you know he i i'd say this if he had gone the direction of nobody told me which i think came out on milk and honey after this um yeah that would have been an interesting direction i mean he that that's that's one of his best solo songs but yeah that is a really good song oh you know, yeah. who knows i mean that's one of those things people speculate about now gangster rap i don't know where the hell anybody i mean yeah i i don't know I who, know the premise of where they were yeah from. i mean because he liked to be agit um like he he kind of enjoyed that agit part of his personality is that what they were going for i mean i don't even get that. yeah i assume so i mean i don't I, but i mean by then he would have been like close to 50 years old i mean there's no way yeah yeah it would exactly. have been funny though i mean it would have been hilarious it's it's kind of why those type of articles are pretty dumb when you come right down to it yeah but... it's, there's a lot of, yeah you're right there's a lot of like what would they have sound like what would the doors have sounded like or uh, what would Jimi Hendrix have sounded like? I mean, I, I, I mean, it's cool to speculate about that stuff, but you know, right? Obviously, there's no way of knowing. Let's see, but this was this was its peak on the chart, and. It was kept out of number one by Rapture and a song that we're about to get to. Ooh! But it was—I thought you were... number one. It was number one on the Cashbox chart this week. So yeah, we should did make it to the top of that chart. We should also do a Cashbox chart just to be iconoclasts. Yep. Yeah, yeah, we should. I thought you were going to do a really cool segue into the number one song. That would have been smooth. Well, well, I'm gonna I'm gonna do it right now. Woman was kept off the tart top by. Keep on loving you by Ariyo Speedway. Again. Okay, so Matt, can you pretend you're my psychiatrist for a moment? Sure. Okay, so here we go. All right. I'm going to do this in Kevin Cronin's voice, too. Here's the problem, doctor. It's this new album. I wrote a song about a girl. I made her up. It was only a song, but I can't <laughs> get her out of my mind. And every time I think of her, I picture her with the other guys, never with me. She's driving me nuts, but she's so beautiful. Okay, okay, Kevin. Okay. Okay. Um, <laughs> if you've ever I've never seen the video of Keep on Loving You until I researched this. Uh, because as I mentioned before, this was before our time of having access to videos and MTV didn't didn't exist at this point. It existed later on in 1981, but um, I'd never seen that before. And that's how they start the video of Keep on Loving You with oh god who <laughs> female psychiatrist uh bearing his soul about this so it's pretty funny and i'll get to the denouement of the video later but um this was uh easily reo speedwagon's biggest hit and it was kind of a power move within the band by power by kevin cronin who was their lead singer uh or he sang most of their songs and um up until this point they had basically been a straight ahead rock band they were their career arc through the seventies was a lot like cheap trick in the respect that they were huge in the Midwest. Uh, They're from Champaign, Illinois. And like cheap trick, they became popular by basically playing every damn show they could, um, you know, in, in, in Illinois, Indiana, Wisconsin, Iowa, Missouri, and all that. So they built up a regional following, uh, but as a rock band. And so when Cronin went to write this song, it was, even early on, it was pretty clearly, you know, going in the direction of being a ballad and the band questioned it and they questioned whether it was a legitimate REO Speedwagon song. And he said, he, he purported to say, he said, he said this, but he said, quote, you know what? I'm the main songwriter for REO Speedwagon. So if I write a song, it's an REO Speedwagon song. It's the band's job to turn it into an REO Speedwagon song. <laughs> Jeez. And I guess the band followed along and eventually they came up with a guitar chord to go with it and um and there you go it became their biggest hit and but but in a way it was kind of like uh selling their soul to the devil because what it also did was is it sent ario down the path of doing even bigger ballads that were nowhere near rock this song at least you know there's actual rock guitar in it i mean it's a legit rock ballad um yeah can't really say that for can't i can't fight this feeling or in my dreams, or anything like that, those are syrupy, straight up ballads. So, um, so in a way, Kevin Cronin sold their soul to the devil with you know by taking them down that path as far as the charts were concerned. But, but then at the end of the video, so he's meeting with the psychiatrist today again, and he goes, um, and in the video itself, they show a pretty attractive model hanging out with the rest of the band apart from Kevin Cronin as if to play out his confession that he did to the psychiatrist at the beginning. So at the end he goes again, he goes, it happens every time I play this song, where does she come from? Doctor, who is this woman? And plot twist. It's the woman from his dreams who is a psychiatrist. Oh God. And she has a British (laughs) accent and she actually sort of looks like, like the woman from love it or list it. So, <laughs> okay. Like, a, like if she was younger, it might. I, it's not her, but so anyway, it's pretty hilarious video if you've never seen it. And I, I don't remember that video. I'm sure it did get played a lot, but I don't remember it being played that much, so it wasn't part of my memory. But it's pretty funny. But I do have to say, is this the best REO Speedwagon song? I think it's really a two horse race between this and uh, "Take It on the Run," which is from the same album, "High in Fidelity." so yeah i'd I'd give a slight edge to this one see i'd give a slight edge to take it on the run but um but it's not a bad song i mean i'm not a big REO speedwagon fan i never i was too young to get into their rock stuff from the 70s that a lot of people like um but this was certainly the height of their popularity and they were big um they were like pat benatar in a way i mean um they were right there with her in terms of being like the band to listen to and if you're in high school in the early 80s so right made yeah. fun of by adam sandler and billy madison where he shows up to high school in an Ario speedway yeah <laughs> yeah shirt, shirt i think and everybody's like what the fuck so yeah you know. anyway well that does it for this week matt are you ready for next week sure this my sure. birthday present to you um i looked on the i actually did a research to help you on your birthday matt's birthday coming up this week and um, I actually looked up a day when your chart would coincide with your birthday. That's not easy because um, the charts actually come out on Saturdays. That's when they're published in billboard anyway. And there wasn't a Saturday. Uh, actually the first Saturday after you were born was in 1982, but we, you know, we're doing an early eighties countdown right now. So I didn't want to repeat that. So we got to go forward to okay. 1993 ninety three. Um, But we're not doing the Hot 100 and we're not doing the album chart. We're going to go to the mainstream rock chart for March 27th, 1993. And let me tell you what, there is some bizarre mixes of rock music on this. Okay. Ready. Kind of interested to see what this is. I, I mean, I'm assuming there is a little bit of grunge in there, but I'm also expecting like hair metal. You will laugh. You'll cry you'll be amazed by some of the mix of songs on this chart. (laughs) Okay. So the mainstream rock chart, we haven't done a mainstream, the mainstream rock chart for people who don't know was sort of invented after the disco era to represent what was being played on FM rock radio, basically. So um, by this point in 93, it was starting to converge to some degree with the alternative chart, but um, so think of if you listen, if you lived in Indianapolis and you listen to Q95, um, you basically hear this, a lot of these songs on stations like that, you know, Okay. Sort of classic okay. rock where they'd mix in some current songs in with it. So um, that's what we're going for. But this chart was in transition at the time, and you will see that next week. So okay, <laughs> it should be fun. All right. So that's it for this week. Matt, um, stay self-isolated. Don't get the coronavirus and uh, everybody else out there. Stay safe. Do all the smart stuff. Yep. Yep. Stay six feet away from each other and wash your hands. And stop buying all the fucking toilet paper and bread and shredded cheese. I went into the store today and shredded cheese was sold. What the hell are people hoarding shredded cheese for? I, I have no idea. Maybe just want to make a bunch of quesadillas or something. I, I mean, I guess you can freeze it still. I mean, you know, it's just dumb. So anyway, be smart, don't get sick, and do all the smart stuff, and we'll see you next week. Yep, see you next week, everybody.